I'll just pick up reading in Ephesians chapter 5 at verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word, and thank you that does detail or give us detailed instructions concerning our relationships here in this present evil age. And we know that apart from your Holy Spirit, we cannot put these things into practice. So we pray that you would supply him first, that we might receive the teaching of your Holy Scripture, and second, that we might put these things into practice, both husbands and wives, in their relationships. We pray that we would glorify you in the home, that we would glorify you in the church, that we would glorify you in society and, in, and as individuals, that we would take seriously our blessed privilege to walk according to that gospel of our salvation. Again, forgive us now for all of our sin and unrighteousness, and we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, we have the doctrinal foundation. Paul expounds on the gospel of our salvation. And then in chapter 3, there's a bit of a transition. He indicates his place in redemptive history as the apostle to the Gentiles and underscores that mystery, which is Gentile inclusion and the covenant promises of God made to Israel, fulfilled, of course, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then from 4.1 all the way through chapter 6, we have practical application. We're supposed to to walk in a manner that is consistent with our high calling. That's the general sort of exhortation in chapter 4 at verse 1. We are, pro we are prohibited, according to chapter 4 and verse 17, as walking like the Gentiles in the futility of their mind. And then he gets real specific in terms of that walk in chapter 5. In verse 1, he says we're supposed to walk in love. In verse 8, he says we're supposed to walk in, in light. And then here in 5, uh, 5.15, he says we're to walk in wisdom. 
So he gives this emphasis on walking circumspectly, being wise, not fools, and then he gives a particular command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he indicates what it looks like to uh, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It will be reflected in the way that we sing. We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We, we praise God, we pray to God, and we proclaim his truth to those we are singing with. And then he says that we will be singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. And then he says we will be giving, all, uh, uh, giving thanks to God for all things through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 21, he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So that's the general sort of a statement. And then from 522 all the way to 69, he gives specific concrete application. He deals with the wife-husband relationship, the child-parent relationship, and then the servant-master relationship. And so this, as I said, is a household code, how the people of God are supposed to live, having been bought by the precious blood of our Lord Jesus and being filled with the Spirit. So we've already looked at verses 22 to 24, the exhortation to wives. Tonight, we'll look at the exhortation to husbands, specifically verses 25 to 27. God willing, we'll finish the section next Sunday night. But tonight, the exhortation to husbands. And we'll look at, first of all, the exhortation to lead with love in verse 25a. And then secondly, the demonstration of leading with love in verses 25b to 27. In other words, he calls us to a particular meth, uh, manner of life, and then he gives us as the standard or as the pattern for that, our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look first of all at the exhortation to lead with love. It's very simple. We've got a duty stated and then the duty explained. Notice in 25a, husbands, love your wives. Now with reference to the duty stated, there's probably a, an assumption on our part probably not on our part because we've read this passage or we've heard this passage preach, but for that original audience, after telling the wives in verse 22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, we might expect in verse 25, husbands rule your wives, husbands lead your wives, husbands govern your wives. But that's not Paul's statement here. Paul says, husbands love your wives. He's already stated that the husband is the head of the wife. Notice in 23 or 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then the rationale or reason is for the husband is head of the wife. So he's already stipulated this. He's already indicated this. He's already stated this. He's not arguing, arguing that the husband should lead. He's not arguing that the husband should govern. He's not arguing that the husband should rule. He's assuming it because he's already stated it. For the husband is the head of the wife. The apostle has used the analogy of Jesus as the head of the church in verse 23b. And again, that's the standard or the pattern that the husband is to imitate or to sort uh, uh, try and follow. The apostle does not exhort the man to lead. God made man to lead. That's a given. That's an indicative. It's not an imperative. Paul's concern is that the man leads in a particular way. So Paul is concerned with the how he exercises this headship, how he exercises this government, how he exercises this leadership. As John Eady said, husbands are not to be domestic tyrants, but their dominion is to be a reign of love. They're not to be domestic tyrants, but theirs is to be a reign of love. So we've got this statement, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The reason is because the husband is the head of the wife. 
Well, what could possibly happen with a sinful man when he hears that? Well, if I'm the head, I'm the leader, I'm the governor, then I'm going to exercise tyranny. I'm going to be a despot. I'm going to forget all about love. I'm going to forget all about compassion. I'm going to forget all about the kindness and the, the gentleness and the meekness of my Lord Jesus, and I'm just going to let her have it. I'm just going to make her submit. That's not what it's supposed to be. If that's your conception of male headship or wifely submission, you're not biblically minded. You're not thinking properly. Again, Edie says, husbands are not to be domestic tyrants, but their dominion is to be a reign of love. If you don't get anything else other than that tonight, get that. Because that's Paul's concern in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. Now, in terms of the explanation of the duty, I have two things here. First, the nature of the command, and secondly, the explanation of the command. Law, uh, the fact that this exhortation is repeated, notice again in verse 28 and then in verse 33, signifies its importance. In fact, if you look at this section, 22 to 33, it's about the wife-husband relationship. But the wife gets very little in terms of verse count. It's the man that Paul deals with. Not that he doesn't deal with the wife, but the emphasis is upon that. The emphasis is upon his reign, and it's supposed to be a reign of love. And I would suggest in terms of the nature of the command, Paul speaks realistically. Paul speaks realistically. Inherent in a woman is to love her husband. So what does Paul address in this particular passage? That love must be tempered by submission and respect to her man. The man inherently is going to rule. Inherently, he is going to lead. Now, I realize there's beta males. I realize there's passive men. I realize there's low-T guys. I realize there's those sorts of fellows that want to abdicate and give the, the, the reins to their, to their wife and just about everything. But that's the exception. The general rule is, is that God made man to lead. And men with testosterone typically do lead. They either lead well or they lead poorly. Paul's concern is that they lead well, that they lead by love, lead with love. So Paul speaks realistically. So the husband inherently rules. He must temper that with love. She is not his property. She is not chattel. She's not like a cow. She's not like a John Deere tractor. She is not like a piece of a possession that one owns. She is your wife, and therefore you are to love her. He speaks realistically. F.F. Bruce made the observation that a husband's legal authority over his wife was such that she had little hope of redress at law for harsh or unfeeling conduct on his part. In fact, several of the commentators point that out. The Jews never were really commanded to love their wives. And in this particular context, brethren, I don't know that I brought it out last time, but the typical marrying age of a girl in the Roman Empire at this date was about 12. Average was about 14. And she was usually marrying a man a decade or two decades older than her. So it would be quite common for a man 10 or 15 or 20 years older than a girl to use her as a slave or reign over her with uh, tyranny or to not engage in that loving sort of a relationship. See, Paul in this, this Roman Empire world is revolutionary. George Bernard Shaw, the famous novelist, said that the Apostle Paul was the eternal enemy of women. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul was the champion for, dare I say it, women's rights. 
He wanted the wife to be protected. He wanted the wife to be cared for. He wanted the wife to be loved. He wanted the wife to be treated the way that Christ treats his bride. Paul was not the enemy of women. Paul was not a chauvinist. Paul was a protector under the Holy Spirit, governing the men in, this, in the churches on how they were supposed to operate in this orbit of marriage. So back to F.F. Bruce, a husband's regal, uh, legal authority over his wife was such that she had little hope of redress at law for harsh or unfeeling conduct on his part. But such a sh situation should not arise in a Christian household. The forbearance and forgiveness which are enjoined in the pre preceding section of the letter. Remember, by the time we get to Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives, we've learned a lot about love. We've learned a lot about how to conduct ourselves toward one another in the context of the local church. If I'm supposed to relate lovingly and forbearingly and forgivingly toward my brother or sister in the pew next to me, I'm certainly supposed to have that mindset with the bride who shares my bed, with the bride who shares my living room and my kitchen. I'm supposed to have that orientation. And that's Paul's concern here. He says, uh, uh, the forbearance and forgiveness which are enjoined in the preceding section of the letter, together with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, forbid a Christian man to be harsh in his treatment of anyone, especially of his own wife. So I, su I submit that Paul speaks realistically. Secondly, Paul speaks consistently. What's he going to do from verses 28 to 33? He is going to apply the one flesh analogy. Where do you think he fetches that one flesh analogy? He fetches it from the Garden of Eden. He fetches it from the creation account. This is not new teaching by Paul. This is not revolutionary. This is God's mind revealed in both the Old and the New Testaments. Matthew Henry made the comment concerning the creation of the woman. He said, the woman is not made out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Meredith Klein made the observation, the woman was made for the man, yet not as his slave girl, but as his queen. See, that's Paul's orientation. It's not brand new. It's revolutionary in terms of the Roman Empire. It's revolutionary probably in terms of Jewish practice, but it's not revolutionary in the mind of God. God saw that the man was alone. There was not one comparable to him. There was not a helpmeet for Adam. That was the one time during the creation week that God said something wasn't good. And so what does God do? He fixes the problem. He removes the rib, he fashions the woman, he brings her to Adam, such that they are now one flesh. So Paul speaks consistently. I would suggest thirdly, under the nature of the command that the apostle speaks particularly. Notice again in verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Not everybody else's wife. Not all the wives out there to be loved. Just like when he says to the wife, submit to your own husbands. Paul's not a Muslim. He's not telling you ladies that you need to be submissive to every single man on the face of the earth. No, he's particular. He's a Christian. He is consistent with God's mind revealed in scripture relative to the created order. Wives submit to your own husbands. Husbands love your wives. 
That doesn't mean you hate your sisters. It doesn't mean you have no kindness for your sisters, but it means that you love one above all the others. And you love one in a manner that's different than the love that you have for all the others. And then I would suggest finally under, under the nature of the command that the apostle speaks authoritatively. The apostle speaks authoritatively. In other words, this isn't open for negotiation. This isn't open for argument. Well, she's not really that lovely. We'll, we'll deal with that as we move through the text. Neither is the church, but Christ loved her and he gave himself for her. And under his rule, under his government, under his tutelage, she actually gets more beautiful. She gets more radiant. She achieves that place of without blemish in that eternal state. So Paul says that under your rule, under your government, under your authority, your wife should be bettered. Your wife should be helped. Your wife should be blessed. That's what it means to love her. It means to bring blessing to her and upon her. So that's the nature of the command, but the ex explanation of the command. In other words, what does that mean? Love your wives. You know, we have this conception of what love is, and it's really wrong. It's really wonky. You know, love is defined by Hollywood, or love is, you know, the, 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 just the erotic sort of a sense. No, love in the Bible is, you know, objective obedience to God's commands. So there's a general sense where 1 Corinthians 13 advises us on this aspect of love. You can turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The argument here under the explanation of the command is the definition of love in a general sense. And if general, then certainly specific husband to wife. If this is to be the overarching sort of mindset or ethic or practice of the people of God in general, certainly we ought not to withhold that from our wives in the context of marital union. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 at verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Brethren, short fuses have no place in marriage. Right? I can't believe, you better, you know, buckle in for the long haul because it's not always going to be as beautiful and as wonderful as you think it might be. I know that when you're in the honeymoon phase, I know precursor to the honeymoon, you think that there's no blemish whatsoever in that potential mate. There is, and it's going to be evident. It's going to be evident in spades. So, so much so that you're going to have to invoke God's help to suffer long. Patience is what it means, but that's a great sort of a way to describe patience. Suffering long, right? And I'm not saying this as if I've got problems. I'm saying this as I know that my wife's got problems having to suffer long with me. But notice, love suffers long. Believe it or not, brother, I'm really weird. I got my issues. It cannot be, you know, a walk in the park for that dear woman. Love suffers long and is kind. Kind. We need to be kind to our brides, kind to our wives, kind to our spouses. Not rough, not edgy. The way that you talk with the fellows at work, you need to be kind. Love does not envy. That means it doesn't want to deprive somebody of something good. Jealousy, I just want what you have. Envy, I want what you have and I don't want you to have it. There shouldn't be that in a marriage. We should love without envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hope all, hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. 
So as I said before, I'll say it again, if general, in terms of the Christian's orientation, then certainly specific relative to the husband-wife relationship. But then with reference to the characteristics of love in the marriage union, taking into consideration the example of Christ. This is one of those passages where Christ is held up as a standard or as an example. example. Again, that's not all he is. We preach Christ and him crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are being saved, Christ, the wisdom and power of God. There is that sense where he is an example for the husband relative to the love that he's supposed to express to his wife. The same love that Christ expresses to his bride. So when we consider and ponder what it says here concerning Jesus and elsewhere in the Bible with reference to the characteristics of love in the marriage union, I would suggest first the husband is faithfully monogamous. He is faithfully monogamous. He's a one-woman man. He's not a several-woman man. He's not got roving eyes. He's not one of those fellows that, you know, can't wait to get away from his wife to go chasing after somebody else. Turn to the prophet Ezekiel. There's an interesting passage in Ezekiel uh, uh, chapter 24. Ezekiel chapter 24. We're on the heels... I'm sorry, it's not Ezekiel chapter 24. It must be chapter... Yes, it is chapter 24. Sorry. Basically, what we find is that God wants Israel to respond to the destruction of their temple and their city in a way that is consistent with God's instruction. And so the way that he wants them to do that is the way that he wants Ezekiel to deal with the tragedy in his own life. Notice in Ezekiel 24 at verse 15, also the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your, wife, of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence, make no mourning for the dead, bind your turban on your head, and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips, and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. Again, the spiritual lesson for Israel is that you're going to be decimated. You're going to be devastated. You're going to be destroyed. Why? Because you broke covenant. You broke covenant. Deuteronomy 28 specified that when you broke covenant, you would be judged, severely so. You would be decimated. You would be exiled. You'd be cast out of the land. The land would vomit you out of its mouth. That's the lesson. They're not supposed to whine about it. They're not supposed to grumble about it. They're not supposed to ache and moan about it. They're supposed to take it in stride because they're responsible for this eventuality. But notice the desire of your eyes. It is his wife, not every wife in Israel, but the one wife that he's married to. The husband loves his wife by maintaining faithful monogamy. He's a one-woman man. Secondly, the husband is consistently self-sacrificing. That's the onus. That's the emphasis in 25b to 27. Just as Christ loved the church and did what? He gave himself for her. Back to Edie's statement, husbands are not to be domestic tyrants, but their dominion is to be a reign of love. Genuine headship in the Christian home is not the man sitting in his big easy chair, pounding the side of it, telling his wife what to do. That's not what we're finding in this particular passage. He is consistently self-sacrificing, and I would suggest under the characteristics of love in the marriage union, the husband is joyfully committed to her well-being. He is joyfully committed to her well-being. And all of these modifiers were placed in there specifically. We can't just do it. We must do it happily. 
Well, I gotta love you, baby. That's just the way it goes. I mean, man, it's a real bummer. It's a real chore. It's a real burden. Now, we may not vocalize that, but sometimes we don't have to. Sometimes it's written all over us that, yeah, I'll do it, but I'm not really happy about it. I, I, don't, I don't want, don't look surprised, brethren. Y'all have children. You've seen this before. Tell your child it is. Okay, yeah, I'm going to do it. That's not sweet submission. Dare I say, I can't be the only man in the room. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm outing myself. Maybe this says a lot more about me than it does any of you. But you got to have the right disposition, too. There's got to be this joyful pursuit of her well-being. Notice the language when he does invoke this one flesh argument. Look at verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he does what with it? He nourishes it and he cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Well, the only way to nourish and cherish something is with diligence, obviously, but there's a joyful purpose. There's a, a desirable end. You, you do this because it's good. You do this because you give. You do this because you want her well-being. And then I would suggest the expression of love in the marriage union. Three Ps here. I made this alliterable so that you can remember this. Three Ps. Pray for her, provide for her, and protect her. Pray for her, provide for her, and protect her. Now, nothing's ever that simple, so I'm going to investigate this a little bit more deeply. First of all, he prays for her. Notice again the example of Jesus in verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So under pray for her, I mean religious, spiritual government, religious, spiritual leadership, religious, spiritual rule. In other words, you encourage church participation. You encourage Bible reading. You encourage prayer. You encourage singing. You do this with her and together. You pray for her. You're concerned about her spiritual state. She says, honey, I was reading heresy on the internet today. Oh, that's good, babe. I, I, I hope you come out as an Arian. No, you, you don't do that. You, you try to prevent that. You, you try to speak peace and uh, peace, uh, speak love to her in a, in a way that promotes peace in, in the home. So the husband prays for his wife. He cares for her. There's spiritual tutelage going on. Not master to servant, not, you know, wondrous teacher to lowly one. That's not what I mean. But I mean that the husband takes charge in the home and he governs with reference to religion and spirituality. Secondly, the husband provides for his wife. There's two things here, the law of God and the instruction by Paul. The law of God in Exodus chapter 21, specifically at verse 10, indicates that if a man took a wife, an additional wife, to the one he already had. It's in the context of slavery. He could uh, take this woman that was a slave and either marry her or give her to his son. But in either case, if he took her as his wife or if the son took her as his wife, there was still an obligation to wife number one. In other words, just because he found another wife doesn't mean he forgets wife number one. So again, polygamy was never God's intention. He made man, he made woman. He made one man, he made one woman. But because of sin, polygamy obtained. Because of sin, men added wives. So what does God do? He provides redress in the law to protect the innocent parties. And he does that. So with reference to Exodus 21, there's three specifics. If he took uh, wife number two, he could not diminish wife number one's pantry, closets or bed. 
He could not diminish her right to food, to clothing, and to marital intimacy. That's what Exodus 21, 10 says. In terms of marital intimacy, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, gives that reciprocal obligation on the part of husbands and wives. And in that instance, it says the wife has the authority over the man's body when it comes to marital intimacy, the conjugal relation. So the Apostle Paul uh, then comes along in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and he gives that admonition. If a man does not provide for his own, what is he? Well, he's a common 21st century deadbeat that doesn't serve his spouse. Yeah, he's an infidel. He's an unbeliever. He's a bad guy. The guy that reneges on his responsibility to keep his wife's pantry filled, to keep her uh, closet filled, and to keep her sexually fulfilled is a deadbeat, according to the Apostle Paul. He's worse than an infidel. He's worse than an unbeliever. So you pray for her, you provide for her, and then thirdly, you protect her. There's a couple of passages that speak to this. Again, the law of God, Exodus chapter 22. Now, Heber, the Kenite, had a sturdy wife by the name of Jael, and she was quite handy wielding a tent peg. Even so, it was his responsibility, if somebody broke into the house, to go and rebuff them, to go and stop them. While you're under the covers, you don't nudge your wife out of the, out of the bed. Honey, go downstairs and see what's going on. You know, take the knife, take the stick, what, whatever, just, just go figure it out. No, you have an obligation to provide for, uh, to protect her. The apostle uh, Paul makes this very clear in our passage as well. This whole idea of love and then a comparison with the Lord Jesus Christ. Westminster Shorter Catechism picks up on this. It says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and what? Defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So we need to reckon with something our culture absolutely despises. Our culture hates this. Our culture thinks this is bad. Our culture thinks that a man with a beard ought to be able to compete in women's sports and win. That's how messed up we are. They actually stop calling women women and they call them birthing persons or whatever the nonsense of the day might particularly be. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. This is not denigrating. Ladies, don't get you know, offended. If you're offended by Peter's statement, you're more, more connected and attached to this culture than you might, might imagine. Listen to what he says. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. I'm not the weaker vessel. Yeah, you are. Sorry. Again, if you don't like that, if you recoil in horror against that, you've probably got more sympathies with the present culture than you do with the biblical worldview. The apostle Peter acknowledges what everybody up until the 21st century acknowledged, that men are stronger physically, emotionally, uh, not always spiritually. Some women give you a run for the money there, but in a general sense, brethren. So who's supposed to go downstairs? Jail with the tent peg or you with the tent peg? It's supposed to be you. You're supposed to defend her. You're supposed to protect her. That in the context of love. Now, I would suggest that when he invokes the uh, example of the Lord Jesus Christ, that supreme demonstration of self-sacrifice, he gave himself for her. What should we extrapolate from that? We should be willing to die for our brides. I don't think any of us would disagree with that in principle. 
We would all say, yeah, if there's a guy who robs us on the street, he's got a gun, he points it in the face of my wife, I'm going to try to get betwixt him and the God, uh, uh, her and the God. That's noble, that's good. But let us not forget, we need to live for her each and every day as well. In the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, the apostle says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. If you're willing to eat a bullet for her, you ought to be willing to bury your bitterness because she burned dinner or bury bitterness because she didn't make everything perfect for you. This is the orbit of love. This is what it means. This is the self-sacrifice that the apostle calls us to, and that's the section we move on to. Well, before we do, let me just read uh, John Gill. He summarizes it beautifully. Husbands, love your wives. He says, which consists in a strong and cordial affection for them, in a real delight and pleasure in them, in showing respect, it's interesting because if you've seen the picture of John Gill, it doesn't sound like this comes from him. Looks like the brother could have used some Metamucil or something. He looks all stopped up. He looks unhappy, but he sounds like a happy brother when it comes to contemplating his beloved and showing respect and doing honor to them in seeking their contentment, satisfaction, and pleasure in a quiet, constant, and comfortable dwelling with them in providing all things necessary for them in protecting them from all injuries and abuses in concealing their faults and covering their infirmities in entertaining the best opinion of their persons and actions and endeavoring and in endeavoring to promote their spiritual good and welfare. This love ought to be hearty and sincere and not feigned and selfish. It should be shown in private as well as in public. It should be chaste and single, constant and perpetual. It should exceed that which is born to neighbors or even to parents and should be equal to that a man bears to himself, so, uh, though uh, not so as to hinder and break in upon love to God in Christ. Here's what he's saying. Your love for your bride ought to far surpass every relationship except God, right? doesn't mean you hate your kids. It means you love your bride. You love your queen. You take good care of her. You pray for her. You provide for her. And you protect her. That's what Gil is saying is what love is all about. Now notice, secondly, the demonstration of leading with love. Verses 25b to 27. We have here first the pattern of our Lord Jesus in 25b. And then second, the plan of our Lord Jesus in verses 26 and 27. Note with reference to the pattern. There is this declaration of his love, right? We know that. He speaks verbally. The, the, the Bible is not silent when it comes to God so loving the world. There's that verbal acknowledgement. There is that, that, that communication by the, the written and spoken word that God loves us. Notice that Jesus functions, uh, functions here as the standard with reference to the husband's love for his wife. This isn't new. Look back at 5.2. 5.1, it says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ. It was 5.2. I said 5.1. Just like I said Philip this morning. It was Thomas in John 14 that asked to see the Father. So here it's walk in love as Christ also loved us and has uh, given himself for us. So this is not new. The standard is Christ. So husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Now, this is an analogy and all analogies break down at some point. Okay, we can't push this too far. We don't have the power to redeem our wives. We don't have the power to sanctify our wives. We don't have the power to, to convey upon them a free justification or sanctification. So the analogy is good and we need to model ourselves after it. But we need to realize the limitations. So, so when we come to this particular passage, we see the relevance of the analogy as well. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. 
Because again, you're going to have somebody sitting in the congregation. The Apostle Paul sends the letter. The Apostle Paul reads the letter and he says, husbands, love your wives. What's going to immediately suggest itself to some you know, meathead in the congregation? But she's not that lovely. She's just not. She's just not. I would always want to say, well, why did you marry her? If you couldn't love her, you shouldn't have married her. Remember the emphasis last time? Do some work on the front end so you don't end up in divorce on the back end. Do a little bit of contemplation and meditation on Ephesians chapter 5 before you say, I do. Before you covenant together before God and men. Do your work. Do your due diligence. If you were buying a car, you'd certainly want a mechanic to investigate it. I'm not suggesting you get a mechanic to kick the tires on this potential bride, but you do your work. You make sure that you can love this particular person, right? This seems obvious. So if somebody says, well, you know, Paul, husbands love your wives. I get it in principle, but she's just not that lovely. Listen to Stephen Baugh. He says, Christ's model demonstrates a love toward someone who is not perfect or purely lovable. In the case of the church, remember this, brethren, you and I are the church, okay? When the church is referred to, there's present blessing to be sure. There is a not yet consummated glory to be sure, but there's a lot of mess, a lot of wrinkles, a lot of spots. He says, in the case of the church, she is full of warts, wrinkles, and impurities outside Christ's loving consecration and cleansing. So there is this declaration of his love, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, but then notice there is this demonstration of his love. So the declaration is the verbal acknowledgement that he loves her, but the demonstration is that he gave himself for her. That's the end of verse 25. So the apostle now is engaged in a bit of a digression. He doesn't immediately return to the responsibility of husbands or wives. He takes up his favorite subject. It's Jesus. And by the way, according to verse 32, the whole section or unit is about Jesus. Now, there's incidental teaching about husbands and wives, to be sure, and we need to glean that and gain that and garner that. But the whole emphasis here is upon Christ and his bride. So the apostle Paul first declares Christ's love for his church, but then he demonstrates Christ's love for the church. And the analogy in the hand of the apostle indicates that the love of Christ for us is self-sacrificing. He gave himself for her. He doesn't demand everything. He doesn't sit in his easy chair, banging the side, telling, telling him to, to, to do this and to do that. His is, in fact, a reign of love. And as well, his love for her is not only self-sacrificing, but it's redemptive. Again, the analogy breaks down. We can't redeem our brides, but we can certainly encourage them. We can certainly press upon them the need to read scripture and, and go to church and, and pray and all those sorts of things. But with reference to our Lord Jesus, he betters our state, doesn't he? That's what redemption's all about. Jesus Christ elevates us under his leadership, under his government, under his rule. We become something better. What's the point? Is your wife becoming something better under your rule, under your government, under your leadership? If not, brother, it's probably not her fault. I mean, it is because she may be a deadbeat too, but you've got to bear some of that responsibility. Look at Paul, uh, Peter again in 1 Peter chapter 3. You ever struggle with prayer? 
not the act of, but feeling as if it never got out of the, 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 the room. It never ever got to the very ear of God. Look at it again, 1 Peter 3. I stopped the reading of the text just to highlight the weaker vessel, but notice what Peter goes on to say. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Huh, you mean the way that I mistreat my wife may actually bar up blessing from God? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it says. The way that you mistreat your wife may actually bar up the blessing of God. See, the Lord Jesus Christ, under his government, the church is bettered. The church is redeemed. He self-sacrifices for her increase. The same ought to obtain in the married relationship. Back to our text. So that's the pattern of our Lord Jesus in verse 25b. But then notice the plan of our Lord Jesus in verses 26 and 27. Paul uses a lot of Old Testament stuff here. I'm going to just try to unpack it a little bit. We're going to bring this home very soon. We're not going to be much longer. But look at what Paul does here. So he says, generally, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So there's definite atonement, blood atonement, particular redemption. Paul's Christology is impeccable. He's not, you know, telling us that Jesus died for every man without exception. He died for the church. He purchased his bride. He went after the elect. Those are his. Those are the ones. But then notice the a particular plan, the sanctification of his bride, verse 26, the presentation of his bride, verse 27a, and then ultimately the consummate holiness of his bride in verse 27b. But note first the sanctification of his bride, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Again, lots of metaphors, lots of things to unpack there. But I think if we just adopt the mindset that Paul's already spoken in terms of old covenant cult, it helps us to navigate this passage. Because some wonder, well, did he cleanse her with the washing of water? Is that baptism? Wasn't it cleansing by the washing through his own precious blood? You know, there's all these background statements in, in Ezekiel 16, G, uh, the Lord God, Yahweh comes to Israel. She's in her blood. He says, live, live. He decks her with ornaments. He takes her as his own. Certainly a, a, an obvious sort of a connection to this particular passage. But uh, Ezekiel 36, the, 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 the God of heaven and earth says that he'll sprinkle clean water upon them and cleanse them. I think back even further, it's the idea of ceremonial washing. It's the idea of preparation to go into the house of God. And again, this concept is already present. Notice in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 18, For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. How did you enter into the temple? You had to first be cleansed. You had to go through water rites. You had to be purified. Something had to obtain before you could enter into the very presence of God. This sort of temple mindset or motif is present. Notice in chapter 3 at verse 19. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I remember preaching that vividly. There's two particular ways one can look at it. I favored the Shekinah glory of God coming upon the temple. And that blazing glory manifested in their midst. 
So going back to this particular section, instead of trying to you know, figure out every jot and tittle of it, just understand that what Christ does is he prepares his bride for communion with the Father. He prepares his bride for entrance in to the very presence of God Almighty. He sanctifies her. He cleanses her with the washing of water by the word. The Geneva Bible glosses this way, through the promise of free justification and sanctification in Christ, received by faith. Gill says, being justified by his righteousness, washed in his blood and sanctified by his spirit. So a general statement in verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Again, it's about Christ, but there's certain parallel and the analogy obtains with reference to the man. You can't do this. You can't affect this. You're not the powerful Holy Spirit, but you again can encourage it. You can pray for her. You can make sure that she can access those means that are sufficient to benefit her soul. And then notice, secondly, the presentation of his bride, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. Paul says something like this in 2 Corinthians 11 too, highlighting his own instrumentality with the church at Corinth. He says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul saw his apostolic ministry in those terms, and he's upbraiding the Corinthian church because they were the Corinthian church. They had a multitude of problems. They had a multitude of issues. They had a multitude of failures. And yet he says, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But obviously the effective agent, the emphasis falls upon the Lord Jesus. And you see that here in verse 27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. And don't miss that two little, two little words, to himself. He saves us for himself. Isn't that beautiful? Heidelberg Catechism number one. What is your only hope in this life? Or your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He, he does this to present her to himself. And there's an already aspect of this and a, a not yet. The already is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. We have been cleansed in his precious blood, and as the church gathered, we have access into the presence of God Most High. But there's a not yet consummate glory aspect that awaits us. Revelation chapter 19, 7 to 11. Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 to 11. We've already received great blessing from our Lord. We've already been justified freely by his grace through his blood. We've already been sanctified or being sanctified, but we're not at that state of, all, uh, of not yetness. And that's where he finishes his argument in verse 27b, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, the apostle uses this metaphor, this language, because it does suggest a blemish, right? Wrinkles, you notice this as you get older. Uh, spots, you notice that as you get older. And, and all kinds of other things. But what is the apostle's mindset here? For those of us who were gathered on Wednesday night, it's Leviticus. It's Leviticus. Remember, the idea is, is that you need to be cleaned up before you enter into the house of God, 
right? You need to be washed with water, cleansed ceremonially, prepared to meet the bridegroom. Well, in the book of Leviticus, there were certain foods that you were not supposed to eat. There were blemished animals that you were not supposed to sacrifice. And there was a class of priests that if they had certain physical anomalies, they were not allowed to engage in service at the altar. They weren't condemned for being a hunchback. They weren't condemned for being a dwarf. They weren't condemned for having a gimped hand or a foot, but they were prevented from offering at the, at the altar. And we think that sounds a bit unkind, a bit unfair. No, the God of absolute glory, majesty, and holiness, who is altogether wondrous, demands that the animals used for sacrifice are blemish-free. And he demands that the man who offers the animals, as far as is able, be blemish-free. In other words, in the entirety of the covenant community in Israel, pick the fellows that don't have these blemishes to serve at the altar. Now, God doesn't say they can't eat from the altar because they were priests. They were entitled, as I said earlier. They didn't have allotments. They didn't have tribal allotments. They didn't have places to grow food. They didn't have places to raise animals. So what does God say through Moses to the people of Israel? They're free to eat. They're not unclean. They're not impure. They've just got a blemish that keeps them from presenting sacrifice in the presence of God Most High. I submit that that's what Paul is on about. There's no spot, there's no wrinkle, there's no blemish. There is nothing that would bar communion with the triune God of absolute glory and holiness. This under Christ's rulership, this under Christ's headship, this under Christ's leadership, this under Christ's government. He sanctifies her, he cleanses her, he washes her, he does it instrumentally through the word of the gospel, and he does so that he can present her to himself a glorious church, such that on that day, she'll have no spot, she'll have no wrinkle, and she will be blemish-free when she stands in the presence of God Most High to worship world without end. Amen. Talk about a standard for our love for our brides. Brethren, we better get at it because we got lots of work to do to try and imitate what our blessed Savior does in terms of cleaning this mess up and making it presentable to his Father in heaven. We are moving. We are on our path. We are going. We are in sanctification. We are being washed. We are being sanctified. We are being cleansed. We are being presented to him as a glorious church. But it's not been yet fully realized what we're going to become without spot, without wrinkle, and without blemish. The Apostle Paul underscores the blessedness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who not only justifies us, not only sanctifies us, but is purposed and planned to glorify us. And he does this for himself. In conclusion, we need to understand the responsibility of the husband, the necessity to lead his wife in the context of love. The standard of leading his wife in the context of love is the Lord Jesus Christ. The explanation of what it means to lead his wife in the context of love. And again, you saw where I got that. I didn't just come up with pray for her and provide for her and protect her. John Gill says exactly the same thing. 
So does John Calvin, John Eady, Charles Hodge, just about every commentator who takes pen to paper and comments on what it means to love like Christ loved the church. And the encouragement, brethren, from me to you, and hopefully you to me, that we do this for God's glory and for our wives' well-being. Secondly, the relationship of husband and wife. I would suggest first the need for obedience to God's commands. You know that most of your problems as a married couple could be worked out pretty simply. Get on your knees, open Ephesians 5, read, and then pray, God, forgive me that I haven't been doing that, and God help me to do that. What, five minutes? Not saying we should rush through it like that. Well, yeah, that's it. Well, now we can go play, you know, phase 10, baby. You know, everything's great, whatever. You see what I'm saying? We, we overcomplicate. Now I realize, you know, there's, a, there's the pr uh, principle of a general practitioner, a doctor that, you know, can, can prescribe a solution for lots of things, but sometimes people need specialists. Sometimes you need a, a brain, you know, specialist or a neurologist, and there's a place for that. There's a place for that sort of a thing. But, but for the most part, the ebb and flow of the Christian life, if we got on our faces before God and we're willing to repent, humble ourselves, and actually do what God says, <laughs> we'd probably iron out a lot of our issues just like that, that quick, honestly. Secondly, we need to understand the blessing of reciprocity in obedience to God's commands, the goodness of marriage when both parties comply. See, we always just think that, that the thing in itself is a blessing. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Not if you don't pray for them, not if you don't discipline them, not if, I'm not saying they're you know, monsters, but they can be monsters. It takes effort, it takes work. So does a good marriage, brethren. It doesn't just fall out of heaven. Well, we just got a perfect marriage. Aren't we lucky? No, usually you have to work at it. You, you, you can't just expect these things to iron themselves out or work these things out. You have to work at it. And then I would suggest the ease of compliance when both parties obey. I alluded to this last time. If I'm loving my wife the way I'm supposed to be, I've got to think it's going to make her job of submission to me a little easier. And if she's submitting to me the way that she's supposed to do, I think that it makes my job of loving her a bit easier. Again, it's not going to be blemish-free. It's not going to be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. There's going to be issues. There's going to be challenges and all that sort of thing. But far fewer than when we're both butting heads and neither of us are willing to obey God's word. That's the key. That's the instruction here. And then, as I mentioned before, the, the, the preparation for marriage should include much meditation upon Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. If you're a single that wants to get married, learn what this passage says. And pray for somebody that fits the bill, but pray that you'll be somebody that fits the bill. God, send me a wife that submits. No, first pray, God, help me to love a woman the way Christ loves the church. And then finally, I think the onus is on the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church, verse 32. Paul draws out the truth of particular redemption. He loved the church and he gave himself for her. He speaks concerning the efficacy of the blood and righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he speaks concerning the glory of the eternal state when we are presented to him as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The apostle in the context of dealing with husbands and wives cannot help himself from engaging in that high and glorious and wondrous Christology that we've come to expect from the apostle Paul and we love and we appreciate. 
May God indeed bless us, not only as a church, but as individuals and as families, so that we may indeed do what the Lord calls us to and conduct ourselves in a manner that is consistent with the gospel. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that we find here in Ephesians 5. We pray for your blessing upon us. We pray for your grace. We pray for the aid and assistance of the Holy Spirit that we may be enabled to comply. And I pray that you would go with us now, watch over us in this coming week, and be glorified in the midst of our, in the midst of our lives. And we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. We'll close with a brief time of meditation.